Well, I would like to begin by reading our passage this morning, uh, this morning and then briefly going into a time of prayer. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can open up to 1 John chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 4 to 18. So let's go ahead and read that together. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or deed, or sorry, word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can gather freely and gather uh, together in joy to hear your word, to worship, one, to worship with one another. God, we pray this morning that you would bless uh, the preaching of your word, that it would cause growth in redeeming grace, that we would see healthy trees growing, producing healthy fruit, and we would see the gospel go all throughout Goodyear and Tolleson and Litchfield and all of southwest Arizona. God, we thank you for this privilege this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I do want to begin uh, our sermon this morning by explaining that this initially started as a talk to our youth group, uh, which in, in a series entitled, What Does It Mean to Be a Christian? And you can see that that's the title of this sermon this morning. And what we will uncover and learn today will not cover everything of what it means to be a Christian. But it will begin to answer that, that question. And I would, in fact, encourage you to consider reading and meditating on the rest of 1 John after this sermon in your devotions and consider what John has to say about the Christian life. And you know, at the very beginning of the Christian life, the Christian experiences the sweetness of salvation. That first taste of new life in Christ is exhilarating. Think back to the first time that you confessed your sins to God and trusted in Christ as Savior and as Lord. Some of you may have done that later in life, at which point you felt an overwhelming sense of peace and relief from all the guilt that you were feeling. Many of us experienced that, uh, grew up into that faith, but we had moments of realization along the way. There are moments of shock and awe when we realize what Christ's death meant 
for us. At whatever point and in whatever way you came to know and meet Christ, it was certainly life-changing, wasn't it? It's also life-changing to think about what life will be like once Christ comes again. There'll be an end to all conflict and despair, no more misery or pain. What glorious thoughts we have when we turn our eyes to our future life with God and the new creation. But what about life here and now? Our past experience when we first encountered Christ was incredible, and our future encounter with God in the new creation will be incredible. But what do we do about the in-between? What is life like after we say yes to Jesus, but we're still waiting for him to return? In other words, what is the Christian life? And as I said uh, this morning, I want to meditate on the Christian life and what it looks like during this intermediary period, or our time of exile, as Peter calls it in 1 Peter. And this morning, John will tell us about one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. And we'll see that the main point from our passage is this. Love is normal for the Christian, and sin is not. Love is normal for the Christian, and sin is not. So if you're a note taker, you can write that down. And uh, before we hop into our passage this morning, I do want to give an introduction to the book because uh, I was told by John that you have not gone through 1 John yet. Maybe you've read it on your own. Maybe you've heard some sermons, but I want to take time to introduce the, the, the book to us before we get into this passage. So one thing you should know about 1 John is that it's notoriously tricky to find a structure and one main theme and one main point that runs all throughout the book. You'll find many different, as many commentaries as there are on the book of 1 John, that's how many different structures that you will find. But one thing is clear from the letter of 1 John, that there are actually three themes that John spends his time talking about and which the letter revolves around. These three themes are holiness, love, and orthodoxy. In chapter 1, John exhorts his readers to not sin and to be holy because God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. In chapter 2, he explains that if we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and that we ought to love our brothers as a result of that and not this world. And this world, John warns, many antichrists are coming and have now indeed already come. And so here in chapter, and so already in the first two chapters, we've, we, John addresses those three, themes, those three themes, holiness, love, and orthodoxy. And here in chapter 3, John returns again to the theme of love. In verse 1, he talks about the, profound, the profundity of God's love for us, that we are made his children. And then in verse 2, he talks about the hope that we have as a result of that. And then in verse 3, he talks about the purifying effect that that hope has on our lives. And so now we come to verses 4 to 18, where John spends some time spends a time of instruction about love for his Christian audience. And so we're going to move through this passage this morning in three main points. And the first point that we'll cover is that sin is not normal for the Christian life. Sin is not normal for the Christian life. We'll see that in verses 4 to 10. So let's go ahead and hop in there. In this first section, John wants to explain that sin and God are mutually exclusive. And so therefore, those that follow God should therefore stay away from sin. That's kind of the summary point of this, 
of this passage. I want to give you that beforehand before we, we dive into this passage. So let's see how John develops that. So John begins this section by laying out three truths before us in verses 4 through 5. In verse 4, we learn that everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. And you'll notice that this is in direct uh, contrast to those in verse 3 who hope in God and therefore are purified. And John uses this term lawlessness. He he says that everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Lawlessness is is the character character trait that described Israel as she went headlong into idolatry and was driven into exile. Jesus also uses this same word in Matthew Matthew 7.23 to describe those who who thought they were going to enter the kingdom. But Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So John is is adding the element of sin is not just a moral evil. It's not just a moral dimension. There's also a legal dimension. It transgresses God's commands and indeed who God is himself. So just as those who, who hope in God and are purified, those who make a practice of sinning actually go further into that and go into lawlessness. And so that's the first truth that John lays before us. The second truth that we see is in the first part of verse 5. We learn that Jesus came to take away sins. And then in the second part of verse 5, we learn that in Jesus there is no sin. So we have these three truths before us. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Jesus came to take away sins, and in Jesus there is no sin. So what are we to do with these three, tr- tree, these three truths? Do we just hold on to them? Well, John ties it all together for us in verse 6. He says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John can make this statement because of what he's told us in, in the previous verses. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning and therefore practice lawlessness practices the very thing that, that God came to take, take away. Jesus came to take away sin. And therefore, lawlessness, that lawless behavior that's inherent to mankind. So for those who are Christians, it, it's, it's not proper for us to live a sin-filled and lawless life. And even greater than that, John says that there's no sin in Jesus at all. So if we claim to abide with Christ, to follow him, how, how improper it is for us to be practicing and living in sin. And so that, that verse, in, in, uh, that what John says in verse 6 is supported by what he said prior. And what this means is that if you've confessed that Christ is your Lord, then sin is forbidden. You are not permitted to sin. This is, of course, true for every human being, but this is particularly true for those who claim to follow after God. Now, we do very quickly need to make the point that this does not mean you have to be perfect. There are some who read this letter and advocate for what's called Christian perfectionism, that we can attain to perfection this side of uh, eternity, and that's not possible. Anyone who's been married for any length of time can say, yeah, I still have so much sin left in my heart. That's just, I've been married for 30 years and, and still have sin. Not me, I'm just making the point of someone else. <laughs> That would be pretty incredible, right? (laughs) 
Look again at what John says in verse six. We know that John is not advocating for perfectionism. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And if you look ahead to verse eight, John describes these people of of making a practice of sinning. And so the, the kind of person that John has in mind here is not the Christian who's struggling against his or her flesh, Uh, going to war with sin and occasionally failing in that endeavor. Rather, John has in mind those who are diving headlong into sin and making sinful practices, actions, and thoughts a regular part of their life, and they have no intent to change. So it's not perfection that John is advocating for here, that we should make that very clear in our minds. And sort of the nail in the coffin in my mind against this this argument for Christian perfectionism is in chapter 1, verse 8, where John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice that there's not a time marker on that. John doesn't say, before Christ, if you say you have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Any person, or sorry, no person at any point in their lives can say that they have no sin. Perfection is not possible this side of heaven. But some may come along and look at verse 7. Someone, someone could say, uh, sorry, someone could say, hey, don't let this preacher deceive you. If you practice righteousness, you are righteous. What do we do with that? What do we do with verse 7? If someone comes along and makes that point and say that this is what John is trying to communicate, we should just very quickly say, I think you're misunderstanding John's meaning here. It doesn't seem to be that John is, is trying to communicate that perfection is possible It seems rather that John is trying to communicate the reality that those who have been united to Christ in faith will also be transformed to be more like him. We saw that in verse 3, didn't we? Those who hope in him purify himself as he is pure. So if if you trust in Jesus, you will become like him. And John is making the point you'll become like him in this particular way, practicing and becoming more righteous as he is righteous. And we also have to notice that verse 7 and verse 8 are tied together. He he makes the same sort of point, but in reverse. It's not just those that practice righteousness evidence that they belong to God and and, and becoming more like him, right? It's also true that those who make a practice of sinning belong to Satan. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So verses 7 and 8 go together and they make the same point. Whatever you make a regular practice of and how you primarily live your life, that will show who you belong to. And notice there's no neutrality. There's no middle ground between belonging to God or belonging to Satan. All of humanity is divided into these two categories. We either belong to God or we belong to Satan. And for those of us who are Christians, we need to evidence that we belong to God. We need to be transformed. And so John is making that point, that to have a life characterized by sinful living is really against the nature of a Christian. A Christian, by definition, is someone who belongs to God through faith in Christ. And John is saying that 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 fruit that you produce in your life, that will prove where the root is planted. And if the root is planted in the soil of Christ, then it's going to produce good fruit. It's going to produce righteous fruit, right? And so from this passage so far, we learn that sin is forbidden. It's not proper. It's not the proper thing for someone who follows Christ. 
the one who came to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. But as we saw, living a life characterized by sin is not only prohibited, it's also unnatural for the Christian. Look again at verses 9 and 10 that sort of summarize everything that we've been talking about so far. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So a life that is characterized by sin is an unnatural way for the Christian to live his or her life between that first profession of faith and until Christ comes again. It goes against who God has recreated us to be. It would be like telling a wide receiver to not catch the ball when it comes to them. Not only would that be wrong, that would mess up the whole game. And it would go against the whole nature of that position. The whole point of a wide receiver is to try as hard as they possibly can to catch the ball. Or or it would be similar to to telling a mother not to come and pick up their, their baby boy or their baby girl when they're crying. That would be, in some cases, it would be wrong. And it would go against the very nature of a mother. They feel with every fiber of their being that they should go and help their crying child and for care for him or her. And so it should be with the Christian in sin. Sin is not only prohibited. We know that. We've known that for a long time, for those of us who have been Christians for a while. Sin is also unnatural. A Christian should love God more than they love his or her own sin. And so the application for us this morning, church, is to keep fighting against sin. Keep fighting against sin. You might be struggling this morning. You may have walked in continuing to struggle with a sin such as lust, anger, disobedience, gossiping, bitterness, laziness. And whatever you have come into this morning struggling with, Don't find yourself going along with it. Fight against it. And this is what God wants from us. John John doesn't imagine Christians living completely sinless lives. He knows that they will deal with sin. But for the Christian, he or she is actively fighting against it. And in fact, this is is a a good fruit that shows that, that that root is planted firmly in Christ to fight against sin, to show resistance to it. Non-Christians don't fight against sin in their lives. Whoever does go along with and indulge in sin habitually as a part of their lifestyle, John says that they have not been born of God. So if you're not fighting against sin and you're indifferent towards its presence in your life, friend, I would have you consider that you have you really been born of God? Consider if, if you've fooled yourself into thinking that you're a Christian. You've learned the Christian talk and the Christian walk and some of the, 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 the life that that demands. But if sin is, is if, you, if you are indifferent towards sin in, in some area of your life, consider if you have taken that initial profession of faith and that God has worked in you and made you into a new creation. But for those of us who are Christians, this should not discourage us because we see the presence of sin remaining in our life. 
because it's going to continue to be in our life and we need to continue to fight against it. Again, this is what God wants from us, continuing to fight against that which is unnatural to our new creation selves. So practically what that looks like, students, if you are disobedient often to your parents, to your teachers, or to leaders here at church, first of all, be aware of it and own it. Ask God for forgiveness and ask forgiveness of those whom you've disobeyed. Pray that God would help you to be obedient to those that you should. Memorize scripture to help you fight against it. Parents, if you've neglected the responsibility of caring for your child spiritually, and maybe you're only caring for their physical upbringing and becoming a good person, own it. Ask God for forgiveness. And maybe, maybe even ask your child for forgiveness, for showing them that something matters more than their relationship with God. And maybe you're struggling with a particular sin, such as sexual immorality. Confess it. Come under the accountability of the elders. Put monitoring software on all of your devices. Read the, the scriptures every day and commit to memorizing passages that will help you fight against that sin. Guys, no matter what point you are in your life, the point is that we need to keep fighting against sin. We need to commit to put sin to death. And the fact of the matter is we will be doing this for the rest of our lives. We might struggle with a particular sin for a while. The reality is we're going to struggle with many sins for the rest of our lives. But, but the hope is as we continue to keep going to the Lord, as we continue to fight against sin, the hope is that we'll struggle less and less over the course of our lives. The, the, the alternative, if you're not actively working to kill your sin, if you are indifferent towards it, you're passive about its presence in your life, the alternative is that it will destroy you, both in this life and the life to come. John Owen has a famous quote that says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So if you're tempted to bitterness in your marriage, for example, and you do not actively work to put that sin to death, it will destroy you and it will destroy your marriage. You'll look at every failure of your spouse and take it as a, capture it as an opportunity to feed your bitterness and what will result is arguing, silently berating them in your heart, speaking about them poorly to other people, and eventually your heart will grow cold, and there will not even be a drop of grace left remaining to offer to your spouse when he or she fails. The same thing can happen with laziness. I think this happens, I think men struggle with this more than women. We can move into a state of inaction not discipling our children at home, stop coming to church, not actively praying and shepherding our wives. And we'll always sinfully prefer to slump into a cocoon of ease and comfort and just let all the responsibility slide off of us onto other people. And then we'll kill us and our marriage too. Brothers and sisters, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And this is our first point this morning, and it's completely unremarkable. And you've probably heard it a thousand times and you know it. But it's important for us to hear again and again and be reminded of what our life, the Christian life, should look like. Sin is not normal. And if at any point it does become normal, we need to get back on track and pray that the Lord would forgive us for being indifferent. 
It's a big part of how we'll spend our time, of how we should spend our time between now and heaven. It's fighting against sin in our own hearts and our own lives. So I pray that this is an invigorating reminder to put sin to death and to pursue holiness because our God is holy and in him there is no sin at all. And in fact, in Hebrews 13, the author of Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So let's show the world who, who, let's show the world who our God is by our holy living. And so our, that's our first point this morning, is that sin is unnatural for the Christian. Our second point this morning is that love is a sign of spiritual life. We'll see this in verses 11 to 15. Love is a sign of spiritual life. So John goes on to explain what love's got to do with it. In verse 10, he introduces the idea that those who do not practice righteousness belong to the devil. Look at verse 10. He says, by this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. But notice that he adds a little caveat there. He adds an extra little sentence. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so John picks up on that in verses 11 to 15, and he expands uh, on this point by talking about that love is a sign of spiritual life. And that's what we're going to see here in verses 11 to 15. So right away in verse 11, John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So to love one another is a command from God. Loving other people is a crucial part, another crucial part of what our life should look like between our first confession of faith and when he returns. But notice that loving other people is not just a command. John says that it's an indicator that we are spiritually alive. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. So love is a sign of spiritual life. And I want to zoom in on that phrase there that, that John uses there. He says, love the brothers. John is making the point that we should love the family of God. Our brothers and sisters are those who have faith in God, who have faith in Christ. Does this mean that we don't love other people? Of course not. But if we can't love the family of God, then why do we think that we will love the rest of the world, which John says in verse 13 that the world hates you. If you can't love those who will be with you for eternity, worshiping God side by side in the new heavens and the new earth, then how can we possibly love those with whom we have nothing in common with spiritually? And, and, and how can we hope to evangelize the world? Isn't the point of evangelization to make disciples and thus they would join the church? There's a natural rhythm to that, right? Some people don't think beyond that initial uh, sharing the gospel and then conversion, but we would hope that that person would join the church, right? So if, if our plan is just to, to love outsiders and to bring them in, we're, we're making every effort to do that. What, what's our plan from there? Do we just forget about them after they've confessed faith in Christ? Well, no, hopefully not. Our love for the body of Christ is actually a crucial part of our evangelism. Remember what John, or sorry, what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
It's not that people will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have generally for all mankind, but but specifically the love that we have for one another in this church body. So I think a very clear natural application is love the church. Love the church. And maybe this is a particularly salient one as, as you, Redeeming Grace, move into a shared space with another local church body. And of course, it's always relevant for those of us in the same church body as well. You know, a lot of people nowadays, and, and of course, long ago as well, they say things like, I love Jesus, but I hate Christians. Or I like Christ, but not religion. Or, you know, I find God when I go fishing on Sunday, so I don't really need to, to go to church on Sunday with all those people. I'd rather be with stinky fish. John is telling us that this is not possible. You cannot love Christ and hate his bride. Have you ever tried to be friends with someone and decide that you're going to hate their spouse? Yeah, that's not going to fly. And listen, I get it. I know that there's some who have had previous church experiences that were particularly painful and were burned by the church in the past. Let me say, our church is imperfect. Are elders imperfect? Do they do stupid, sinful things sometimes? Do Christians fail to love their brothers and sisters? Yes, on all accounts. But does the Bible, does God tell you to stop loving the church because one of us will fail? Does the Bible tell you to abandon the church because you are hurt by it? No. At some point, you may see or experience the imperfections of the church and its leaders, and that's because we're all sinners. We're all in need of God's grace, just like you. So Christian, love the church. John says that that's a marker of spiritual life. And here's some ways that you can get started now. I, I, this is what I've encouraged when I preached this sermon at, at Camelback. I encouraged uh, our body to, to start with these things. Not that they hadn't already, but to continue, keep these things in mind. The first is to serve in some capacity. Serve in an area that has need, not just where you feel gifted or talented or have desire. I'm, I'm certain, I know that a lot of people would love to serve in an area that, that is in front of people, who is teaching, makes big decisions, is noticed by everyone. But we often find a, a lack or a shortage in positions like a deacon of grounds, making sure the building is clean, making sure light bulbs are changed every once in a while. It's typically a shortage of people to serve in the nursery with thankless crying babies. So, so show up willing to serve the church in whatever area that has need. That's the first practical way you can get started to love your brothers and sisters around you in this room. Secondly, show up on Sunday mornings. Kudos to all of you who are here. Continue to do that. Make Sunday morning a priority. The reality is that you cannot love your brothers and sisters if you're not present. That's all that I have to say about that point. And finally, you can become a member of your church. Membership may sound like a weird thing, but all that membership is is a, is a commitment. We're covenanting together. We're saying, I'm committing to this particular group of believers to love them, to encourage them, to be encouraged by them. 
And, 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 and commitment is, is a form of love. It's a way that we love people. Think about marriage, right? Uh, if you love a man or a woman, you'll prove your love by making a commitment. I think about, you know, when myself and uh, Amy, when we were dating, I could tell her all the day long that I loved her, right? But I proved it. I, I, I saved up money. I gave her a diamond ring. And I asked her if that she would commit to me for the rest of our lives. I chose her exclusively to commit to her. And she showed her love for me by making that same commitment, this mutual commitment. It was beautiful. And so, guys, membership is, is making a similar commitment. You aren't just going to church. You're not just attending church. But you're committing to be the church. And, and I heard John mention uh, something from the church covenant, which we have as well at Camelback. And I'd like to read a portion of Camelback's covenant, what every member signs when they become a member. So it says this, it says, I covenant in the presence of God and in fellowship with this church family and in dependence on the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit to serve in my world as Christ served in his, to work energetically for the drawing in of all people, to strive for the building up of the local church in love, to promote the sending out of each member of the church family. Isn't that exactly what every Christian should be doing anyway? There's nothing new here, right? And this is what membership promotes. The commitment and accountability to live thoroughly Christian lives in the context of a local church, which is actually another big part of how we should spend our days is in the body of Christ. While we remain on earth, we are to gather ourselves into local churches and live the Christian life together with brothers and sisters who are local, who are near us. And we're to love our brothers and sisters across the globe, no, question to, no questions asked. But when God commands me to welcome one another, to forgive one another, or to help a brother if he falls into sin, I just can't do that for brothers and sisters who are in Africa or Malaysia. So that's, the sec that's our second point this morning, is that love is a sign of spiritual life. Love is a sign of spiritual life. So we're going to move into our third and final point this morning. Love needs to be gospel-empowered. Love needs to be gospel-empowered. Look at verses 16 to 18. That's where we're going to be. We're going to focus primarily on verse 16. So, so far we've seen that the Christian life needs to be characterized by fighting against sin and loving one another. That's how we are to spend our days until Christ comes. And that's what we should prioritize as we wake up, as we go to work, as we drop kids off at school, as we provide for our family, that's what we should have on our plate, the main things that, that drives everything else. But here's a question. How can we do this? How can we put sin to death? How can we love one another? How can we possibly hope to fulfill God's plan for, for the Christian life in these two areas of putting sin to death and truly loving one another. Some of you may have been here this morning and, and, and felt hopeless as we talked about what the Christian life should be like. You've reflected on your own life and said, gee, that's, that's not very much what my life looks like. Maybe you've been fighting against a particular sin for a while and you've seen no success. And, and, and not only that, you, you feel discouraged by... Uh, by the fact that because you've devoted so much energy to fighting against sin, there's, there's, there's not enough energy to love other people around me. 
And on top of that, I feel drained from fighting sin, loving my family, tending to the regular demands of everyday life. And to make things even harder, John says in verse 16 at the second part of it, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the kind of love we should have for one another. Self-sacrifice. How in the world are we supposed to do that? Well, look at what John says right before that in verse 16. By this we know, love, that he has laid down his life for us. Brothers and sisters, it always comes back to the gospel. Our love needs to be empowered by the gospel. We need to know, to be convinced that God has loved us by laying down his life for us in the person of the incarnate son. If you are confident that the creator of the universe, the most powerful being in all of existence, loves you and set his affection on you. And he has shown it by going to the cross. God will supply a strength that you thought you never had. And in fact, it will seem like a small thing to lay down your life for your brother. Fighting sin will feel much less like a fight because I don't want it as much. I would prefer to have more of Jesus. It would be a joy to be like him and to sacrifice ourselves so that others may have joy, may be encouraged, may be served. And so what we need to do is we need to meditate on the gospel daily. We need to meditate on the gospel daily. Some people think that the gospel is the ABCs of the Christian life, things that we kind of figure out at the very beginning, when reality it is the A to Z of the Christian life. It's something that we need to, to remember and think about and, and work out in our lives every single day at every single point. The truth of the matter is that we do need to be reminded of the gospel on a daily basis. Because humans are forgetful creatures, aren't we? If anyone needs evidence of this, you may recall the, the incident with Israel and the golden calf. Israel was just saved by Yahweh, and Moses went on the mountain, and people, the people of Israel were, were like, what's, what's taking so long? And, and you know what they said? They said, yeah, let's build a God who will lead us. What? Are you serious? You, you Israelites, you just saw how Yahweh, the God of Israel, led you through the parted sea. You witnessed all these plagues in Egypt. And that was a matter of weeks ago. And now you want to build an idol? That's crazy. We should read that and, just, and our mind should be blown away. But guys, that's not just them. That's us. That story is a demonstration of the incredulity and the depravity of the human condition. How often do we forget God's great sacrifice on our behalf? Would you be able to sin if you were standing at the cross, looking at Jesus, bleeding and suffocating for your sake? I would hope not. And that's why we, we need to have Christ crucified and risen before us each day in the gospel. 
We will never be able to love like Christ loved us if we don't think about, ponder, and delight in him and the salvation that he's given us each and every day. And this is why Bible reading is so important. The gospel message is pervaded all throughout the scriptures. No matter where you're at, if you're in Leviticus, if you're in Jude, if you're in Psalms, God's message of salvation is communicated to us. And it's a sweet reminder. It's like a multifaceted diamond, right? God could just say, I love you and I forgive you. And that'd be the bland oatmeal type gospel. And we'd get sick of that every day. But the scriptures are like a beautiful diamond. Every, every angle of that diamond, you can turn it into light and you'll see refractions uh, and beautiful lights and colors all going throughout that diamond. And that's what this book is. Let's meditate on the gospel every day and the word that God has given us. The second point of application comes from verses 17 and 18. We need to love in truth and in deed. And as we meditate on the gospel, that should and it will move us to bring our actions to faith. The love of Christ compels us to move towards our brothers and sisters in love and to help them both materially, physically, as well as spiritually. John says this in verse 17, if anyone hate or sorry, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John rightly wonders how anyone who has the love of God in their heart could turn a cold shoulder to a brother or sister in need. And so we need to foster a love for God by meditating on the gospel daily and express that love in our deeds to our brothers and sisters. And this extends to all image bearers, all human beings. But it most especially applies towards the church, to, our, to the family of God. And so redeeming grace, I charge you to make love the regular, normal pattern of your life in your actions, thinking, and in your feeling. Commit to killing sin and to loving one another. Make the church a priority in your planning and decision-making. Are you planning to move this year or go off to college? Make one of your criteria for moving that there's a healthy church nearby where you can covenant and live the Christian life together. And consider serving in a new area that you have no experience with, but that has great need. I imagine there'll be many of those as you move to a new location and times change and maybe volunteers can't get there at the same time because they're used to coming later, but maybe you're able to come earlier. Maybe you can make that sacrifice and come and fill a spot that has need. Find a younger believer and start meeting with them once a week, every two weeks, once a month, and just pour into them. And, and find a believer older than you that you can confess sin to, you can be accountable, and who can pray with you and give you counsel. Church, let's commit to fighting sin, increasing our love for God and for one another, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to meditate on your great love for us this morning and how it has transformed us into new creations. God, thank you that you have, we, we get to 
get a taste of the first fruits of new creation by your work in our lives. We are your new creation people, and we pray that we would live like it. We pray that our lives would consist of holiness and love that is deep and immovable. God, give us the grace to live in this way and to continually remember you and your great love for us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.